Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Mike Petriello. Mike is an excellent writer for MLB.com. He takes complicated concepts via their StatCast system and turns it into English, which is a very admirable skill that I enjoy very much. Uh, StatCast has launched concepts that are now in the mainstream in terms of vernacular, stuff like launch angle and barrels and uh, route efficiency on fly balls and all that good stuff. And uh, Mike does such a good job of breaking it all down and making it simple. The research at StackCast is really cool. He talks about on this podcast some of the initiatives that they have coming up, which is really neat. It's stuff that scouts would try to measure with stopwatches or whatever, but now it can be accessible to the masses. And in some cases, stuff that wasn't necessarily quantified that's accessible to the masses. Uh, Mike, along with... Uh, all the people there are doing great work, and uh, you will enjoy his work as well. So check it out at MLB.com and check out uh, his thoughts on this podcast. We get into stuff about the Rays and the A's and the Astros, lots of other cl- clubs, lots of other concepts. Really, really a good talk about baseball, baseball analytics, and where the game is going, uh, which I think is really cool. I'm always up for stuff like that, and Mike is one of the best. I, we were joking on the podcast that it had been like nine years since we met, and it was one of those beers over in New York or, uh, or over beers in New York kind of thing with a few different folks. And uh, we were both just doing our baseball bloggy kind of thing. And uh, now he is uh, at the pinnacle doing really cool stuff in MLB.com. It's really great. Mike is a good one. And you'll enjoy his work and you'll enjoy him on this podcast. I think you will also enjoy this week's sponsor, friends. That is SeatGeek. Hey, guess what? SeatGeek has been sponsoring the Jonah Carey podcast since the dawn of time. And they remain awesome. And... You know what? Football's back. Yes, some of you are football fans. It's true. And if you want to go to a football game, guess what? SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every game all season long. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a trip to the game, or need to find the perfect gift, whatever it is, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Maybe you want football. Maybe you want stretch-run baseball or even playoff baseball. Maybe you want NBA and NHL. That's coming up. Concert, what have you. I have used SeatGeek for hockey games and baseball games and concerts and lots of other stuff, and they've always been great. Very, very easy to use interface. It makes it easy to figure out, okay, what is the best value in the stadium or the arena or what have you. It's color-coded. It's analytical. It's intuitive. It's terrific. Really, really great. I have long used SeatGeek myself and listeners of this podcast have used the promo code. I love when you do that. Feel free to uh, well, I don't use Twitter much, but you can try tweeting at me, I guess, uh, or send me an email or whatever, and tell me about your experience with SeatGeek. If you jumped on it or used the code or whatever, it's great. Like I said, I hope they sponsor me. They have for like a million years. Let's hope for a million more. And get this. You've probably used this before, but if you haven't, just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today. That's J-O-N-A-H. You'll get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. That's all you have to do. Maybe you've thought about SeatGeek. Maybe you've heard about SeatGeek, but you're like, I want to go to this game. All right. Download SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah today. You get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. That's it. That's all. That's all you got to do. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Some programming notes, uh, cbssports.com. Uh, you will find all kinds of good stuff from me there. I wrote a piece recently. Uh, Jorge Lopez took a ninth, uh, perfect game into the ninth inning for the Kansas City Royals. And so I kind of went off on how amazing it is that we have this technology now 
where you could just flip to any game you want and it's, hey, see the game and go over there and do that. It's it's really neat and we kind of take it for granted a little bit, but it's really, really cool the fact that we've arrived at that point in history. It used to be that you had to wait for the game of the week or whatever. And now it's, yeah, you want to watch that Twins-Royals game right away? Do that. And I'm just mesmerized by this technology. So I got into that and sort of wax nostalgic on all that stuff. More writing coming down the pike. I'll be doing a little bit more writing in the uh, days and weeks to come. Still doing a bunch of video, of course, for CBS HQ. You can find that. Just go to cbssports.com and at the bottom of the page you will see HQ. That's live streaming 24 hours a day, video, news, and analysis. Uh, we're doing a ton of stuff there, but also some writing. And also for Sportsnet uh, on TV, at sports on Sportsnet in Canada, on Blue Jay Central once a week, as well as Sportsnet.ca. This week I'm writing about the AL MVP race. Be sure to check that out at Sportsnet.ca. Be sure to also check out the second of this week's sponsors. That is HIMS. How about this? Two-thirds of men start to lose their hair by age 35. That is a difficult thing to process. The thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's often too late. You need to figure out a solution to this. It's not easy to do. Some stuff can appear scary. You've heard stories about, well, this is not good for you, and if you take this, that's going to be bad, and that's no good, and that's no good. Forhims.com, F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness, and lots of other stuff for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss, well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Prescription solutions are backed by science. It is easy. It is non-harmful and you should get on it with Hims. You can order now. Listeners get a trial month of Hims for just five bucks today. Right now while supplies last. You can see the website for full details. It would cost you hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. Five bucks! For a trial month, go to forhims.com slash Jonah. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Jonah. Again, that's forhims.com slash Jonah. Thank you to Hims for sponsoring the podcast. And here you go. It is the latest edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast with Mike Petriello and Jonah Carey. Okay, Mike Petriello, I'm excited about this. Uh, first of all, we met many, many years ago when we were both uh, bloggers on the periphery of the universe, and now we uh, are uh, gainfully employed by the universe, which is really nice. So I'm excited about this, and I'm excited about uh, the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. And, you know, you're right. Like, you were there, I think, the very first night I met any actual cool baseball people. Like, I have our mutual friend, Jay Jaffe, uh, entirely to thank for this. And we went out to some Thai food restaurant after he realized I was a Dodger fan living in New York. So that was... I don't know. Nine years ago? My God, that's terrifying. It's a long time ago and much has happened. And, and one of the things that's happened is that the Houston Astros are at the forefront of baseball research now. And, uh, I can remember when the Astros acquired Colin McHugh. 
And at the time, we're like, all right, call me cute. I don't even, or if anybody even thought anything of it, because he was a guy who wasn't good enough to crack the Mets rotation. And uh, it was all right, whatever. And then it turned out that the guy had a high spin rate. That was pretty much it. And it was, I remember that was the first time that anybody, at least within my sphere, was talking about spin rate. That this is something that he's got a curve, he could spin it, he's got a fastball, he could spin it, and we feel like this is going to amount to something. And McHugh was okay for the Astros for a few years, and now the last year or two has really broken out. And you just wrote a piece about Ryan Presley, same kind of thing. He was an okay pitcher for a different team. The Astros saw something in him, they acquired him, and now he's anchoring that bullpen. Uh if this is so easy, why isn't everybody turning mediocre pitchers into spin rate Zen masters who can get everybody out? Yeah, I look at those two guys very, very differently. Uh, okay. Colin McHugh, they signed him prior to the 2014 season, yes. right? So this is a year before StatCast. I'm sure people within the game knew about spin rate, certainly, but the general public was not thinking about this in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually looking at his stats right now, the year before he pitched for the Mets and the Rockies, and he struck out three per nine which wow. is bad. It's, I mean, 26 innings, it's bad. Um, but you're right. And 2014, he was a pretty decent starter. And for the next three seasons, pretty decent starter. And obviously, as time has progressed, everyone's talking about spin rate. I almost think people are talking about spin rate a little too much because mm. it's a really good tool to have, but it does not by itself make you a good pitcher. It's like velocity. Lots of guys throw 98. They're not all good pitchers, but it's a nice tool to have. Ryan Presley, I look at a little bit differently. Uh, by the time the Astros acquired him this July, I think every semi-competent baseball writer was aware of spin rate and what to look for and how it could be useful. And it's not surprising to me that the Astros identified this guy and said, hey, this is someone we wanted, because it's not like he was bad with the Twins this year. He's actually having a really good season with Minnesota. What surprised me is that when they got him, they made some extremely Houston changes. They said, hey, you've got an awesome curveball. You should throw it more. And you've got a high-spin fastball. Why don't you throw it higher in the zone? Which is really great. It's worked out very well for him. But what's shocking to me is that how is it that the Astros are still the team that's doing this? Like, I could have looked at this and said, you should do this. Lots of people uh, did. Why couldn't the Twins make this happen? They did to some extent. He was having a good year. Why aren't other teams able to do this? I don't think, you know, still the Astros are probably ahead of the game. But it's not like they are the game where I think they probably were a couple of years ago. So I'm really interested to know, and I don't have the answer to this, like what are they doing internally that's different? Do they have a better way of approaching the players? Have they just built up a better reputation over the last couple of years as being a team you should probably listen to? Because you see what Justin Verlander's done and Garrett Cole and Colin McHugh. I don't really know, but there is still something that's different there than there are uh, for a lot of different teams. And that's what I find more fascinating. It's not hard to find talent anymore. It's hard to make the most of talent. And that's what they're really good at. Well, and it's interesting to me. I wonder if this has something to do with the Astros personnel specifically. And Brent Strom comes to mind. I can remember interviewing Brent Strom for Baseball Prospectus in, like, 1925. Like, I mean, we were – this guy has been, you know, somebody cut from the old cloth but who embraced new ideas forever and ever and ever. And he has, of course, has a key role within the Astros organization in developing pitching, the key role. And maybe it's the case that other teams have numbers jockeys in the front office and maybe they have this and maybe they have that. But when it comes to the actual on-field pitching coach – that person is still imbued with the, you know, techniques of the past. And so they might sort of pay lip service to these things, but they're not excellent teachers who are also 100% all the way bought in to whatever data is put in front of them. Maybe it's just as simple as that the Astros are hiring better people to implement the lessons that the nerds want to implement. 
Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, other teams are doing that too. We've seen like in Arizona, they've hired Dan Harris, who's like yeah. a perfect guy for this, right? He's smart. He's got the on-field experience because let's be honest, I could go into a locker room and tell a guy to do this and they're going to look at me like I'm crazy. Who's this guy? He's never pitched. He doesn't know. All 30 teams have very smart people in the front office. I think what's uh, differentiating teams right now is that they don't all have the proper venue to get it to the field and to get this information to be actionable. Because if you've got smart information that doesn't actually go on the field, it almost doesn't matter. And I think that's where we're seeing the teams set themselves apart. And it's incredibly difficult to quantify. I'm sure the Astros do a great job with that. Uh, I want to talk to you. This isn't necessarily a stat cast concept, but it is a statistical concept. One of my favorite writers these days is Bradford Doolittle. I really like the stuff that he's doing for ESPN a lot. And he'll tackle kind of a question every week, you know, a broader question. And the thing that he tackled most recently was run differential. And he talked about that the Mariners are on pace to maybe be the team that bucks run differential more than any other in MLB history. Uh, the Rockies come to mind. The Rockies continue continue to be in first place in the NL West, even though they have a negative run differential, and the Dodgers' run differential is like plus 10 million, and the Diamondbacks have a positive run differential. It doesn't matter that the Rockies are beating them. And he, you know, he went through all these machinations like you're supposed to do. You test, you build James it up, and he found, well, you know what, there's more variance this year than in the past, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything, and odds are it doesn't mean anything. However, every single year we can rely on it had been the Orioles over and over. It used to be the Angels over and over. One year, Texas had a crazy, you know, r- inverse run differential where they outperformed it by a wide margin. But it seems to happen more and more. And we've had theories about, well, it's because he's building a lockdown bullpen and Buckshaw Walter really knows how to pitch, pick relievers. Eh, maybe, but a lot of teams have good bullpens. It doesn't necessarily work out that way. Uh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And it does seem to circle back to luck more often than not. But at the same time, this is built in randomness. It is a given that there's going to be Mariners or Rockies every single year. And every single year, we're going to have to explain this. So if this thing is truly governed by luck, is it just that one out of 30, we're doomed? Like that's mathematically somebody's going to beat it by a wide margin. That's going to be it. Or can we do better than throwing our hands in the air and saying, well, you know, you beat it and that's it. And the Rockies are going to win the division. I mean, I don't think it's entirely luck. I, I do think, okay. listen, from a from a content point of view, I really enjoy having a team every year that gets off to this hot start, and we can all say, hey, I don't think the Mariners are actually this good. And then we look pretty good. Or even with Texas that year, all winter we said, I don't think they were actually that good, and Rangers fans lost their minds. From my perspective, it's kind of a nice tool to have. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not so much luck. I don't. I mean, well, let me back up. It is definitely some amount of luck. But I also think it's about the the style of game that you play. If you play a w- lot of one-run games, if you are a team that's not, you know, the Rockies are a great example of this. Their pitching is really, really good. They yeah. had that terrible stretch for a couple weeks in June. But otherwise, their starting pitching has been phenomenal. And their offense has really been pretty bad. I mean, Arenado's great. Story's having a monster year. Blackman's really not. Yeah. Uh, th- that is a team that's kind of built for playing a lot of close games. You know, and I think mm-hmm. that, that, you know, you don't see that with, let's say, uh, the Astros, you know, who are outscoring everybody by a ton of runs. And I, I also think what's a little different this year, just in baseball in general, and I don't have numbers to back this up, it feels like there are more blowouts in baseball this year. You know, we've also, we've seen more uh, position players pitching, which means that they're coming in in blowouts and potentially exacerbating blowouts. You know, like we saw uh, the Mets-Phillies game that one day where the Mets put up like 26 runs. like, And then I think a couple of days before that or after that, they had gotten pounded by the Nationals and given up like 26 runs. That can do a lot to screw with your run differential. Yeah. There's, there's a part of me that almost thinks we should rework it to say, we'll count your run differential up until like 
a gap of winning a game by five, or if you've scored 10 total runs or something, and just not count the excess, because that might not actually teach us anything. Right. Um, I, I don't know if that would actually matter or not, but it, it's really interesting because, you know, I hate to say there's too much about luck. Like, we know baseball is a weird game where sometimes things just happen and you can't explain them, and that's cool. But there's so many games, and there's so much sample size over the course of a season. It's really hard to see any of this uh, persisting. And I, I mean, I take no joy in watching the Mariners lose because I mean, Mariners fans deserve a playoff spot. They're not going to get it this year. But you know, from an analytical point of view, it was nice to say, "Hey, we're not just making this stuff up. Like we don't say things to be mean. This is what the numbers said, and it seems like this is what's happening to them." And let's circle back to bullpen for a second. You know, it's something that obviously we see starting pitcher usage is going down every single year. We know that bullpens are more and more important because they're being used more. We have more guys throwing 98, 99 out of the bullpen. This is all fine and dandy, but there, everything is a finite resource, even relievers. Relievers are more plentiful than, you know, Jacob DeGrom's, but it's still the case that it's not that easy to snap your – or well, let me back up a second. It seems like it's not that easy to snap your fingers and build a good bullpen because if everybody knows that a bullpen is super important, then everybody would have a good bullpen by definition. And they don't all have a good bullpen. Teams might try to have a good bullpen, but they don't necessarily succeed. But then you look at a team like Oakland that has like seven good arms out of the pen. They made something out of Blake Trinan when he wasn't before. Trevino was a guy nobody had heard of. Now he's really good. And they acquired three X, three or four or seven X, X closers and they just have a really good deep bullpen. So if this is the, Vanguard, if this is where we're all supposed to go, this is how you're going to win. Figure out how to hit, play some defense, get a good bullpen, and maybe you don't need Clayton Kershaw times five. If that's it, if that's a way to save money, if that's a way to win games and whatever, then why can't every team do it, and why isn't every team doing it? Yeah, I saw someone tweet the other day after uh, Brad Boxberger blew another game. He's like, with all the emphasis on bullpens, look around the National League. Is there any team in this league that is comfortable with their bullpen right now? And it's like, the answer to that is probably not. You're right. It's it's not as easy as you think. I think a big part of it is that uh, it's so hard not to find a good reliever, but to find one who will be good and healthy for more than like 12 months at a time. You know, I think with the A's, they they actually, you know, they are they're doing something a little different. Right. I mean, I think when you when you look at the bullpens just in general, the the traditional model was here's your starter, and then for the last 30 years. Seventh inning guy, eighth inning guy, ninth inning guy, and then maybe like a situational lefty or whatever. If you're going to do this like constant heavy emphasis on the bullpen, you can't just have everybody throwing one inning at a time, you know, and it's okay, Blake trying and fine. But I think you're seeing a lot of these guys who can come in four, five, six outs and they have to. The A's rotation is not good. No. Um, and that sets aside, you know, whatever Tampa Bay is doing, which like I'm a huge fan of what Tampa Bay is doing. That's a completely that. different thing. Yeah. Um, but you're right. You know, you look at some of these teams and sometimes I almost think they outsmart themselves. You know, like it feels like the Dodgers just sort of assume they can always find a bullpen and it hasn't really worked. And when they've been without Kenley Jansen, it's kind of been uh, a disaster. Like they were a team that should have gotten Ryan Presley and not John Axford. You know, it's, it's just not as easy as it looks. And uh, I don't know what the right answer to this is, but I think what we're seeing is it can't be. Uh, I mean, it can't be two things, right? You can't have guys who throw one inning. We need more and more pitchers, pitchers who will give you two or three innings. And I don't think no matter what a team like Tampa Bay does or what a team like Oakland does, we are ever going to see the total death of a starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I don't think the Rays went into this season saying, this is actually how we want this to go. You know, when they started doing this, everybody got hurt. You know, you look at the A's, everybody's hurt. Sort of this is by necessity. And I think the really like the, the correct way to look at this going forward is, okay, we want, let's say, Two really good starting pitchers, semi-traditional starting pitchers, maybe a third guy who's like average-ish, and then 
fourth and fifth, we don't really care about crappy fourth and fifth starters. We want those are our bullpen days, those are our openers. You know, I think that's kind of the way you have to look at it. Because if you don't have even that, uh, it's going to be really hard. And that, to me, is kind of what stands out about the A's is they don't have the Blake Snell that Tampa Bay has. Like, Sean and I has been fine. But he hasn't been great, and he got hurt. And, you know, at this point in the season, it doesn't even matter that much because rosters are expanded, and you really kind of got to throw two outs at a time. Um, but I think what the A's have done is, uh, and I, I think this is going to sneak up on some people, they are built way better for the playoffs than they are for the regular season. Oh. Like, it's actually shocking that they've been able to maintain this over a long period of time. But you go out there with, like, days off every other day uh, in the postseason with that defense and that lineup, and who cares about their starters? That That is going to be a really fun team to watch. I want to follow up on Oakland for a minute, and I want to get to a, a point of theory here. So... We talked about Houston as being this team that was locked in on spin rate before it was publicly digestible and they were going after Colin McHughes before and there seems to still be better at it than anybody else. And then Oakland, I can remember an article and I am going to blank on who wrote the article. God, I want to give credit. I'll try to do it in the intro to this podcast, but somebody wrote a piece. Uh, I think it was a baseball prospectus piece. It was a young kid. It's like 20 years. It was really good. It was like a breakthrough piece by this kid, too, who went on to. Is this, is this going to be about fly balls? Yes. Yeah. Who, Andrew Koo. Andrew right? Koo Wasn't wrote it? it. Yes, I think that's yes. right. Great piece. Exactly. It's about fly balls. It was really good. It was like the A's are doing something nobody's ever done before. I'm like, ooh, cool. What's that? And they're, they're going after hitters who hit fly balls. And now, of course, we have the airball generation. Everybody uppercuts. Everybody wants to be Josh Donaldson and Justin Turner and Daniel Murphy and whatever. But Oakland was doing this before anybody. And you fast forward to now, and you've got a bunch of Yonder Alonzos and Justin Smokes or whatever, but if you look around the league and you have to say, who has really harnessed this the best? It's probably Oakland. Oakland is second in the American League in home runs, even though they play in a ballpark that is not all that conducive to home runs. And you look at their lineup, and it's a bunch of dudes. I'll be, like, slightly politically incorrect. They all look the same. They're all white dudes. They're all 6'2". They all hit fly balls. They all go out of the ballpark. All of them, Olsen, Chapman, Flapman, Blapman, Matt Joyce, whatever. They're all the same. What? It's, they're all the same. And is there – I guess my question is, is there something to being a first mover on something such that even when the rest of the league, quote-unquote, supposedly catches up, because you've been doing that thing for so long, you have more expertise than other teams, and you can be an Astros, and you can be an A's, and you can out whatever those other teams because you've just been doing it longer? I think that's a really interesting point, and I was thinking about this the other day. We are 15 years past Moneyball, and here we are talking about the A's being on the cutting edge of something. You know, We're 10 years past the Rays going to that World Series, and here we're talking about the Rays being on the cutting edge of something. Um, You know, it's funny, the way you look at that about the A's, I had written about them like three or four weeks ago, kind of talking about exactly that. And I don't know if the numbers are still up to date, but if you go back to like 2002, so the last 15 seasons, the A's have like six of the top 10 uh, you know, lowest ground ball rate seasons. And it's not just this year. You know, you go back to those guys like these, the Brandon Moss and the Seth yeah. Smith and the, the Donaldson and all these guys. And I, the reason I wrote about it at the time, and they've since screwed me on this, I'm very unhappy about it, is through like the end of August, they had not had a bunt hit all season. And they were going to be the first team to ever wow. do that. And then I go on vacation and I come back and they had a bunt hit. And I was Who very had upset it? about it. I believe it was Jed Lowry against the shift, I think. Um, but anyway, like whether or not they get one or two bunt hits, who's going to set the point? You're right. Like they, I also think there's some amount of fortunate uh, outcomes here for them, right? So the reason they started doing this, you know, five, six, seven years ago was because all of baseball was trying to get ground balls. You know, it was like the Leo Mazzoni, throw it low, keep the ball on the ground. That's how you keep it out of the ballpark. And so they're like, okay, well, we're going to go collect all these dudes with these low swing paths. 
who are going to golf a bunch of balls out of the park. And they, you know, people forget, like it's not been a great couple years for them, but it was only four years ago they were the best team in baseball. And they collapsed at the end of the year, you know, the Cespedes and Lester trade and all that. But they were very, very good that year. It was working. And I don't think it's fair to say that they predicted the whole, like, launch angle, spin rate thing, essentially. But I do think it's sort of played right into their hands. You know, like, that's if that's where the game was going to go. The game sort of adjusted right to where they already were. So I think it's a little bit of, of smart foresight uh, and a little bit of fortuitous outcomes, too. Because, yeah, I mean, they... They are already comfortable with this. I, I do think, like, we talk about numbers. Like, I'm as guilty about the, of, of this as anybody. Obviously, we talk about numbers all the time. But if you don't get employees, the coaches, and the players to buy into what you're doing, really none of it matters. We, we were just reading about this with the A's last week. They tried the opener, and it seemed like there was some grumbling, not because it was a bad idea, but because it wasn't communicated very well. Like, the starter showed up at the park thinking he was starting and then finding out later he wasn't. That's a big problem. And I think, you know, it's tough uh, or it might have been tough years ago to like get all these guys who are going to have these low swing path, not put the ball on ground, strike out a lot. And it's, it's not necessarily the baseball a lot of people grew up with, which I think you can certainly say about a lot of things in baseball today. And the A's were clearly at the forefront of that. And it's just, it's so much fun that here we are again in 2018 talking about the A's doing something weird and different and riding it to success. It's like an ongoing story now for more than a decade. So let's get to the opener's point and let's get to Tampa Bay. It's not like they're the first team to ever do this because we, there would be something called a bullpen day in the past. And a bullpen day basically meant everybody's injured. It's Sunday. We've played 13 games in a row or whatever. We got nobody. We're going to start a bullpen guy and another bullpen guy. And we're probably going to lose seven to three. That's probably going to happen. So what is it that the Rays are doing that makes this work? Is it just that now it's a predictable part of their culture and so they can game it out a little bit better? Do they have personnel that's more conducive to doing this? Why is it that in the past it seems like this was an automatic loss, and if you're playing DFS, it's like, all right, I'm going to obviously fade these guys, versus now it's like, oh, Ryan Yarbrough is going to pitch the second to the sixth inning today. Tampa Bay's probably going to win this game. I think a lot of it is just about planning, right? I think in the past, if you had a bullpen day, um, it was because things went really poorly for you you know like maybe you'd used up a lot of your pitchers or somebody was hurt you probably weren't going out there with a good pitcher in the first place you're like i just need to go out there uh and soak up as many innings as you can and i think that's part of it too if you're still going to start someone and say i need you to get this into the fifth inning even though you're not technically a starter that's probably going to end poorly for you now the rays aren't doing that they're going out with these quality arms like ryan stanick he was a first round pick he's a he's, monster he's, yeah i don't think he's like a future all-star or anything but yeah. he's a perfectly quality major league yeah. pitcher and they go to him and say, listen, we don't need you to go out and stretch yourself out and eat up innings. We need you to do as much as you can for, like, five outs. Well, that's great. Ryan Stanek throws 99 with a killer splitter. Yeah. And not only that, they are they're planning it uh, due to the opposing lineup. I, I remember when they first started doing this, they did it against the Angels. Well, that was an amazing yes. team to do it against because when Otani wasn't pitching, they had, and this is uh, at the point in the season where Cole Calhoun wasn't hitting any better than yes. you or I was, they did not have a single competent left-handed bat. So, of course, you throw Sergio Romo against a team like that. It's all about planning to me. Uh, and then I do think it's about buying. You cannot force this upon players who are not willing to do this. I think that'll be a huge disaster. I also think they got a little bit fortunate here because it worked right away. If this had been a disaster for the first, like, five times they tried it, I don't think they ever tried again. Well, it didn't. It was really – it's worked out. I do think it's gotten a little too much credit. Like, I think when we talk about how good the Rays have been and we talk about the opener, uh, we neglect Blake Snell, who has been unbelievable. Terrific. Arguably a, a Cy Young candidate this year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But what I, what I think about this season for the Rays is I think of it as a proof of concept. You know, they have proven that there is value to this. And I don't think any team's going to do this five days a week, nor should they. Um, but at a certain point, it almost gets into semantics, right? Like if you have four starting pitchers and now you have a fifth starting pitcher who's not very good and he's going to go two and a third innings. Well, whether you call him an opener or a fifth starter or a pulpit game at that point, who really cares? You know, like just understand what his role is going to be, put him in the best position to succeed. And I think that it's really worked out. I mean, I think if you went to Ryan, uh, Ryan Yarborough and you said, would you rather have been like a traditional starting pitcher and maybe you're like, I don't know, eight and 10 with a 450 ERA, or would you rather be where you are now, which is like 14 wins and, uh, you know, that's going to look really good for you. I think you'd probably take this. I think we need to do a lot more study about the, the effects of this. I know people are worried about what it'll do to the salary scale. Uh, and I think it's totally valid to consider that. But I also think people have just sort of assumed that it's bad uh, without really putting any thought into it. And I'm really interested to see how that's going to work. But, yeah, for now, for the eight, for the Rays, it's really like they had a solid plan. Um, I think they were pushed into it a little sooner than they might have been comfortable with it because uh, uh, Honeywell got injured and Jose De Leon got injured yeah. and Anthony Bonda got injured. And I think at that point in the season, uh, Jake, Jacob Ferry was injured. Yeah. So they had, like, Snell and Archer. And maybe Archer was injured at that point too. He wasn't the point injured, is, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like they needed to do something. Uh, you know, Yanni Torinos had been injured. Like it was a mess. Um, so now I think that they've sort of combined it with like, well, we really like Snell and Tyler Glasnow seems incredible. That Archer deal looks amazing for them. And we're going to have those guys pitch and put them in the best position to succeed. But also we know how to most effectively use our other guys. And isn't that what this is all about? It's like, you wouldn't put, uh, you know, Wilson Ramos at shortstop because you know he can't do it. So why would you do the same thing with the pitchers? It's all about putting your players in the best position to succeed, and I think that's what they're doing. Yeah, it creates a situation where you can turn guys around, too. The Angels are an extreme example, but if you've got a top-heavy lineup, which is righties or lefties or whatever, you can flip it. You know, the Rays can start with Romo and go with Yarbrough. Those are two totally different pitchers. Romo has an extreme split as a right-hander. His slider is by far his best pitch. Yarbrough is a different arsenal. He's a left-hander or whatever. And this brings up the point that I keep coming back to, probably because I'm showing my age, but I think the team should carry at least one quality pinch hitter, and they don't. They continue to not do so. And it's interesting to me because when you get to both the July trade deadline, maybe especially the August, there's a lot of like Justin Boers flipping teams. You know, Matt Adams is flipping teams. These guys are not going to – Adams is playing a little bit more, but Boers not really playing. But these guys are supposed to be Matt Stairs. They're going to be carried on the roster because in the playoffs, you can you don't need as many pitchers. You have more off days, whatever. So you can carry a guy like that and not necessarily worry about if he plays a position. It's a big bat off the bench who can do damage. But have we gone too far toward giant pitching staffs? That we can't carry these guys anymore. And I feel like particularly when everybody's focused on versatility, that every team has a Marwin or a Zobrist or is trying to anyway, isn't there room for a guy who could just mash off the bench and play occasionally? Like, are we just doomed to this? Should MLB expand the rosters to 26 so we should accommodate this? It feels like this is a class of player that's gone the way of the Dodo, and, and it doesn't really make sense to me, particularly at a time when there are openers and you're flipping everybody over and all of a sudden everybody in the lineup is a mismatch. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, the issue with expanding the roster is, like, I have no problem with another 20 or 30 jobs around the majors. That's great. But then managers and front offices are just going to use that for another reliever. I know! So so that's going to make it worse. So here's what I would be in favor of. I think you just got to accept the fact that some of these guys with uh, with options are going to be kind of on a taxi squad. You know, 
if you can say to a guy, listen, we want you to take a week off because we need your spot and you need a rest in the middle of the season, and maybe some of these guys can't be optioned, you don't want to have to say to a guy he's got to go on the disabled list, right? Because it doesn't look good for him. He doesn't want to come off as being injured prone. Yeah. I wish we could just have a way to say, you know what, you're not active for this game. You know, we're going to use your roster spot somewhere else. I think it's hard to legislate. You have to have this many pitchers and this many hitters because now you have Shohei Otani, and I don't know how you <coughs> define whether he's a pitcher. And you're going to have more guys like that, I think. So that's tough. Um, but I, I think you're right. I, I think there are some changes that could be made. Um, I just think we're in a very difficult spot right now where getting agreement on the two sides is going to be very complicated for the next few years. So I would be surprised if there are any changes until like the next collective bargaining agreement is up. But, you know, that's okay. This is the first year of the opener uh, and it's not even a full year. They didn't start doing this till May 19th. So we're going to have to you know, get a little more experience to see how this is all going to work. But you're right. I don't like giant pitching staffs and short benches. Uh, it ties the manager's hands. You know, they don't make the, the moves you'd like them to make because they don't feel like they've got the backup depth. Uh, especially everybody seems to be playing with a guy who's injured and they're a man short, which is like infuriating to me. Mm-hmm. But it's more fun for baseball to have a guy off the bench. Like, uh, you know, Matt Stairs, you're right. Does he have a job in baseball today? I don't know. And I want a guy like Matt Stairs coming off the bench to see if he can pound a digger. I do think that's good for the sport. And I think those are important questions that everybody's going to have to try to figure out, but it's going to take a couple of years, I think. You've alluded to my solution to the uh, September roster issue too, because I can't stand that. I believe in in continuity, some homogeneity within the game, some fairness within the game. I don't think that it makes sense for one team to have 40 guys and another team to have 31 because of whatever, salaries, lack of prospects, or whatever. And my solution to that is that you make the September roster 26 guys, no more than 25, but you can carry a taxi squad of up to 14 players. The sport that I that I compare it to is hockey. You know, you just decide who you're dressing that day, and they sit on the bench in uniform and they can't play and I think that would work great now obviously the way that you game that of course is that four starting pitchers are going to not be active fine okay so four starting pitchers are not going to be active if you insist on making it four other relievers that's fine I'm going to guess that you might make it two or three other relievers and maybe you'll bring in a guy but that is exactly how I would do it I think that's the easiest solution because this September roster thing has been talked about quite a bit I feel like it might be part of the CBA Although the cynical part of me says it's small beans, they're going after the big stuff, whatever. But I would like to think that you could get to a point where you just say that. Right, 26 men, carry 14 more, carry one more, carry two more, carry whatever you do. That's how you fix it. Then every team has the same size roster. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think that's kind of the point is that everybody agrees with you. Literally everybody. I have not heard a single person push back on any sort of idea like that. Yeah. Everybody complains in September. And nobody ever says, no, this is great. I love it like this. And if that's the case, why does it never, ever, ever get fixed? I think you are correct. It's not exactly high on the priority list in terms of things that the players union and the sport are going to be talking about. So there's that. I mean, the simple fact that my team has 10 more guys than your team, I guess it's not usually 10, but that's the idea, uh, is absurd to me. And it makes September baseball somewhat difficult to watch because there are so many pitching changes. That's actually something separate that I would fix is, I want to get rid of one inning, uh, excuse me, one batter pitchers. Like I don't like mid-inning pitching changes. I would like to see every pitcher have to face, let's say, three batters. Like I'm going to do some research on that over the winter because I think it'd be really interesting hmm. uh, to see. That would be uh, a way to fix some of this, I think. But it's a separate issue from the September stuff. And, and you're right. Like there's no downside that I can see uh, to legislating this, and it just never ever seems to actually happen. I want to go back to something we were talking about before, and we started to allude to it in the, in the context of doing something for a long time. The Astros with spin rate, the A's with fly ball rate. But one thing that you touched on 
is the idea of progressive organizations in general, that we're still talking about Oakland and Tampa as arguably the two most progressive organizations are certainly way up there. One thing, when I was writing about the Rays extensively, the, you know, I was saying, oh, Rays, wow, good job, good job. And then the end of the book was basically everybody's going to be doing this. And, of course, everybody is doing this. And the Phillies, I remember, were, like, maybe the last team to hire somebody organizationally who had an analytical bent. Now they've got a really robust analytical department. And Matt Klintak, you know, incorporates everything brilliantly. And, geez, Gabe Kapler is their freaking manager. I mean, whatever. Kapler's like, uh, he's he's the prototype to do and implement all this stuff. So they, they've got that. But is there something to the idea, again, not so much of a particular concept, but of having an analytical bent and having it be just an extreme part of your DNA to the point that the owner knows about it, that Stu knows about it, that makes it so that Tampa and Oakland and teams like that can continue to wield some competitive advantage over even a team like the Cubs or the Red Sox, which obviously know their analytics backwards and forwards, but don't sell out as much, you know, just go for it as much as teams like Tampa and Oakland do. Yeah, I think it's a difference of media market and it's a difference of talent level. You know, like if you're the Red Sox, you don't need to go all in on the closer or on the opener. You have Chris Sale, you know, you have David Price, you have these guys. Uh, and not only do you not need to do that, I think that it would be a big problem if you went to Chris Sale and said, hey, by the way, uh, you know, you're going to be pitching in this way. He's going to look at you like you're nuts. Now, the Rays and the A's uh, have younger teams, and, and like we mentioned, it's just a ton of injuries. So there's really nobody there with the standing to say absolutely not, except for like Archer and Snell, and they didn't try to do that to them. I think that's a big part of it. I also think it's just the reputations of those teams. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, of course the A's and the Rays are going to do something weird. That's what they always do. That's our expectation that they are going to be baseball's test ground for just the weirdest stuff. You know, we saw the Rays with the shift all those years ago, and just, it's always something. Now, let's say the Yankees go try to do this. Let's say Aaron Boone says, oh, by the way, uh, Dallin Patances is my opener tomorrow, and he's going to pitch like an inning, and it doesn't go well. Can you imagine what he's going to have to deal with the next day? It, I, I really do think that's a big part of it. You, you'd like to think it's not. Right? You'd like to think, well, we're analytical now. We're taking the emotion out of it. We're just going to go with what's best. That's not really how it works. You know, Kevin Cash has the flexibility, I think, to do some of this stuff that Aaron Boone does not, that Alex Cora does not. You know, and I do think that's a big part of it. I, I think a lot of it's the reputation. Like, I think about Houston. Um, when they tore everything down, you know, their reputation was in the in the toilet. And I remember they had uh, – I'm trying to remember the details, so I might not get this exactly right. I think they had come to an agreement with, like, Ryan Vogelsong one winter, uh, and it fell apart, and he went back to, to San Francisco, and he basically said – I didn't want to play there uh, because they treat everybody like numbers. And, you know, that was not an undeserved reputation wow. at the time. But now I think it's the opposite. Now I think you have guys who are saying, you know what, if I go there, they made Justin Verlander great again. Look at Brian Presley's a star now. If I go there, maybe they can teach me something about myself and show me how to be a star. You know, I, I think that's really interesting, um, the way that the reputation has changed. And I am certain that within the game, yeah, players and agents and everybody, like, they look about – where they're going to go. And yes, obviously it's based on contract and salary. Where do their, where does their family want to live and all that? But it's also going to be based on who's going to help me be the best version of me. Where do I see guys going and getting better? Where do I see guys going and getting worse? Maybe I don't want to go there. Uh, and I think that you could never really quantify that. We assume Houston's up there, maybe Tampa Bay, you know, Oakland, the Dodgers are probably up there. Um, I'd be really interested to know how players think about that because I, I do have to think that's a big part of their decision making. 
It's interesting too. You brought up such an interesting point about the Red Sox and the Yankees that they'd be under more scrutiny if they were to do something weird. I can remember when the Red Sox had a bullpen by committee. They had Folk at the end of his career and BK Kim and whatever, and they couldn't really get it done. And that was the end of that. And I feel like things progress. I, this might be the only time that I say this. I'm encouraged by the NFL and I will tell you why. Jonah, no. I know, I know. I can't believe it. Um, how long did we go where it was, oh, you know, you don't want to give the other team momentum. You better not go for it on fourth and one. Because if you don't make it, then you turn the ball over, and then that's it. You could just kick a field goal here. It's free points. Take the points. You always take the points. And now, unless you're, like, almost a troll, every media person is going to take you to task, or a lot of media people are going to take you to task, if you don't go for it on fourth and one in the other team's territory, it's obviously mathematically the move. Now, having said that in week one, and I do follow football a little bit, uh, Matt Nagy, who's the new coach of the Bears and is very progressive and built that great Chiefs offense and whatever, he was in a situation where late in that game they were playing the Packers, they were up by three, they were fourth and one, and they kicked the field goal. And you know what? The best player on the planet went down and drove down and got a touchdown and, they, and the Bears lost the game. Shocker, I know. And they obviously should have gone for it. So we're not all the way there. But the fact that Matt Nagy can be second-guessed the next day, not for uh, doing the risky thing, but for do not doing the thing which mathematically makes the most sense, even though aesthetically it seems like it's riskier, is a good sign. And so from a baseball perspective, I think, I think we're going to get there. Even in Boston and New York, even if those are the last frontiers of riskiness or whatever, even if Dave Dombrowski, like if you watch Dave Dombrowski's management style, Dave Dombrowski goes into every offseason and says, what do I need? Who's the best guy? I'm going to get that guy. The year that he got Kimbrell and Price, even like Carson Smith, and there was a hitter too. He needed a, you know, really lock solid, at the time Carson Smith was really good, setup guy, got it. Needed a closer, got Kimbrell, got it. Spent $217 million for Price and got a hitter. And he just got, he just was best practices. We're the Red Sox, we're going to flex on you, we don't even care. He even did it when he was in Detroit, that's it. But, if the next GM is not Dave Dombrowski, or if the Yankees decide to be more aggressive, I think that we can get to a point where they're going to get questioned for doing the things which on its surface appears to be somewhat risky, but mathematically is completely borne out in fact. I think, and this is exciting to me, it means that baseball has further to go. We haven't saturated, we haven't figured it all out. We're going to make progress even in those markets, if that makes sense. I think it does make sense. And I, I think, I wouldn't want to say that the Yankees and Red Sox are somehow anti-analytical. No. Like the Yankees have an enormous analytics set. Probably with the Dodgers, maybe the biggest in baseball. And I also think that they're using them in ways that fans might not necessarily uh, see uh, right away in the field. Like, uh, there was a lot of talk this last winter about how Alex Cora goes to Boston and he goes to Betts and Bogarts and says, you guys are way too passive. You're letting too many hittable strikes go by. Here's the numbers. Here's what you do when you swing at fastballs early in the count. If you do this, I promise you it will be better. Also, they were both playing through hand injuries last year, which yeah. I think was a big part of it, but... Anyway, they've done it. They've been more aggressive. That is analytics right there. Like, it does not have to be something super weird and game-changing. Uh, that is just, hey, here's how I think you can crush more baseballs. And they went and did that. And so I think that, that you know, all 30 teams do that now. And I, I think you're right. Five years ago, most teams, but not all teams. And now every team is probably, like, the, the lowest-ranked analytical team, whoever that might be, right now is 
probably better off than the best team was in like 2010. I think that's indisputable. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of the the media markets, it's just like when you're going to do something that you have to explain, you know, okay, well, here's our opener or here's why I yanked this guy after two and a third innings. And I do think that you're correct that as time has gone on, there are fewer people who don't understand that. You know, you might not like it and that's perfectly fine, but if you can't explain some of this stuff to your readers or to your listeners, if you're a broadcaster, then you're just, you're doing them a disservice. And unfortunately there's still some of those guys out there and you can probably guess who some of them are. Um, and I'm not saying everybody has to trumpet this stuff because you don't, you don't have to like it, but if you can't understand it, then then you're not doing your job. And I think that that is something that's changing. Like more and more people are getting into it. Uh, it actually, it makes it harder for me, right? Because now you just have beat writers who are talking about weighted runs created plus and that's a good thing. Like it means that the, the conversation, the, the level of the conversation has risen and that's fantastic. And it makes me work harder, uh, which I appreciate. But also it's like, Oh yeah, I'm not like one of the guys who can explain that now because everybody can explain that now. I think that's good for baseball. I think that's good for smart people in baseball. Um, and I, I don't think that's limited to the small markets. I think we do start to see that everywhere. That's the exact point that I was going to make is that if, even if you look within those markets, like the best slash most prominent Red Sox beat writer right now might be Alex Spear. Alex Spear is a terrific writer, deeply grounded in analytics. He's good at other stuff, too. He's good at everything. Uh, but he knows Bill James. He knows Prospectus. He knows Fangraphs. He knows Stackhouse. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. He writes for the Boston Globe. Every time you watch a Red Sox broadcast, there will be a little fact on the screen. It'll say, blah, blah, blah. The Red Sox, uh, Mookie Betts is number one in this. And it's from Alex Spear from the Boston Globe. And so if the supposed guardians of the tradition, you know, within Boston and New York and the big markets are actually guys like Alex Spear, then there is no media pressure. Nobody's going to get cooked for it anyway. So that that's an interesting thing, too, that depending on who the journalists are, that might move the sport toward more progressivism because you're not going to get filleted for doing something that was obviously the right move that backfired on you, like using your closer in the seventh inning or whatever it is. That's fascinating to me that Alex Spear can make the sport more progressive theoretically because he's the guy who would put your feet to the fire and he's saying, no, no, Alex, that was cool. I'm with you. I totally agree. Process over results every time. Yeah, all that. And Alex is a really nice guy too. I kind of hate him for all that. Both Alexes are. <laughs> Alex Cora is a very nice guy too, but yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, you're, I think you're totally right. Cause let's say, you know, Craig Kimball comes in the seventh inning and blows a save right in the past. I think every Boston tabloid would just destroy the manager over and Alex Spear and some of the other guys will say, this didn't work and that stinks, but here's why they tried to do it. Here's the thought process behind it. And that is, that's the job, isn't it? To explain what's happening. Yeah, it didn't work. Maybe it'll work the next time. And here's why I, I do think you're right. You'll still find some guys like that. Um, but if you look all around the major markets, I think we've got a pretty good sprinkling everywhere. Like in LA, you know, covering the Dodgers, Pedro Mora would do a great job of explaining this. He would not tear you apart for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's very few markets anymore where there's not at least one guy like that. You're still going to have your, your muck razors, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, and talk radio is still going to be a cesspool of horror because that's always the way it is. Yes. Um, but it's, it's nice that we have probably in all 30, uh, you know, team markets that there's someone who can at least explain what's going on. And I, I think that helps because not everybody's going to go read fan graphs or follow me on Twitter or whatever. You need to have your local guys. And I think that's, that is a nice step forward, uh, for baseball as a whole. Mike Petriello, this has been great. Uh, we will follow your work at MLB.com, talking all things StatCast uh, on Twitter. Uh, lots of good stuff. And uh, just like, you know, preparing for this, I read your last 
six, seven pieces or whatever. I love it. It's just a grab bag. It's like, let's talk about Michael Kopech today. Let's talk about the Astros today. It's just kind of all over the place. And it's like, I'm interested in this. So I'm going to write about it. So that's really cool. And I, I, I like the way that you're able to take these complex issues and explain things to me. Cause I'm not that smart. I have a BA in journalism. So I, I'm, I'm very much of the audience. It's like, please explain it to me so I can understand that I don't get quite get this. So it's good that you're out there doing this. And, uh, I appreciate you and I appreciate your work. Oh, I appreciate that too. By the way, I have a, a history major, so I'm not that smart there either. There you go. But, but I can tell you, we've got some cool stuff coming up uh, later this week. Uh, we're going to have uh, some outfield directional stuff, like who's the best going in, going back. Oh, I like that. Right? Which I think will be pretty cool. And then over the winter, uh, we're going to rework like who's the best route runner and first step and reaction time. And then I'm hopeful for early next season, we'll finally get the infield defense. So we're always working hard on stuff over here. Well, that's great, Mike. And I promise you that the next time we talk, I will not praise the NFL. Stadium. That's okay. I appreciate that too. <laughs> <laughs>